Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series. Talk about a campaign that changed the course of history. The Six-Day War between Israel and its neighbors, mainly Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, is high on my list. This is the first campaign on our series that I was alive for when it happened between June 5th and June 10th, 1967. Of course, I was very young then. Here in the United States, we were listening to transistor radios and songs like Groovin' by the Young Rascals and Respect by Aretha Franklin. The Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin and To Sir With Love with Sidney Poitier were playing in the movie theaters and Lyndon Johnson was the president. It's difficult to imagine what would have happened if Israel had lost this war, that it began with a surprise attack at dawn on June 5th. But suffice it to say, things would be very different today in the Middle East had that happened. One of my own memories of that war was the vast disparity between the size of the Israeli armed forces their army and air force, as compared to the Arab forces they were preparing to confront that early summer of 1967. I remember headlines in newspapers and displays on television that often superimposed icons of tanks, aircraft, and soldiers over the map, and it looked to all the world as if this tiny country of Israel would simply be engulfed by a tidal wave of massive Arab military might. And I might add, there was little to engulf. In preparation for this podcast, as always, I've done extensive research, but as usual, I'd like to point out a particular work, a book, that I've relied upon for many of the facts and anecdotes about this war. It's Michael Oren's Six Days of War published by Presidio Press in 2002. Oren received his Ph.D. from Princeton and has written extensively on Middle Eastern history and diplomatic affairs. He's an American-born Israeli citizen and a current member of the Knesset, Israel's parliament. He's a former ambassador to the United States. If you want to read what I think is the definitive account of the Arab-Israeli war that we're going to cover today, this is the book. Not only does it cover the military campaign in exquisite detail, but also the political and diplomatic action that we'll not be able to give much time to during this podcast. It's also delightfully well-written, with plenty of eyewitness recollections of events and anecdotes from all sides that give the reader an up-close and personal feel for the times and events surrounding this war. And I'm going to share some of them with you as we go along here today.
Now, Israel was a tiny country, like I say, not too much to engulf, covering about 8,019 square miles, slightly larger than the state of New Jersey, which is the fifth fifth smallest state in the United States. Furthermore, its elongated shape, hugging the Mediterranean Sea, looked like a sliver on the map and was almost bisected in its middle by what we now call the West Bank, which was then part of Jordan, including East Jerusalem and the ancient and historic Old City. The distance between the Jordanian West Bank, the edge of it, and the seacoast of Israel was only about 30 miles wide at many points. About a third of its territory, all in the south, was the Negev Desert, almost uninhabited, and enjoining the Egyptian Sinai Desert, an equally forlorn moonscape of arid desert punctuated by small cities. By contrast, its neighbors, except Lebanon, looked gigantic on a newspaper map to my eyes. The disparity in forces went something like this. As for the troops, Arab allies deployed about 240,000 men. Deployed. Israel, about 100,000. So that's about a two and a half to one advantage right there. As for aircraft, Arab Soviet supplied MiGs and other aircraft numbered about 957. Israeli-French-supplied Mirage and Mystère jets numbered about 300. So that's about a 3-to-1 advantage. And as far as tanks goes, Arab, the Arab allies with Soviet-supplied tanks, they numbered about 2,504. Israel's complement of tanks were mainly British and American-made uh, and numbered about 800. Again, about a three-to-one advantage in favor of the Arabs. You get the idea. On paper, Israel's odds did not look good. Furthermore, a simultaneous war with Syria, Jordan, and Egypt meant that Israel would not just be fighting on two fronts, but three, in the north, center, and south, with the biggest force, the Egyptians, with more than a hundred thousand soldiers deployed in the Sinai Desert and another 150,000 reserves, an army two and a half times the size of Israel's alone. And yet, in a matter of days, Israel's army would rout all three armies, plus some smaller contributions by Iraq and the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization forces, and conquer territory that would triple the size of the country. This podcast is about how this happened and why. As we always do, we put this campaign in the context of the conflict in which it took place. I use the word conflict here because there had been an ongoing conflict between Israel and its neighbors pretty much continuously since the independence of Israel, by war in 1948. The displacement or diaspora of some of Israel's Arab-Palestinian population to neighboring Arab states 
resulted in the creation of simmering, seething camps of Palestinian refugees all around Israel's northern and central borders, uh, as well as in the um, west in Gaza. Then, as today, angry militant groups of displaced Palestinians frequently crossed the border into Israel, bombing and killing Israeli settlements in their hatred of the occupier, provoking it uh, Israeli retaliations. These, in turn, often escalated into running gunfights and battles with the Jordanian or Syrian armies, protecting their territory and sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. If the action got hot enough, the Israeli Air Force would swoop down, strafing and bombing Palestinian camps and settlements, often with collateral damages and death, and sometimes opposed by Syrian or Jordanian MiGs. Since Israel invariably got the better of the air conflicts, the usual final result was the downing of mostly Arab jets, but occasionally an Israeli one as well. This unhappy situation flickered and flared for years, but became particularly intense in 1966 and 1967, due mainly to the mutual goading of the dictators of Syria and Egypt. Salah Jadid of Syria and his Ba'ath Party in Damascus, and Gamal Abdel Nasser and his regime in Cairo. Syria was the most important and closest ally of the Soviet Union in the Middle East by 1967, and would always have strong ties with and backing by Moscow, just as it does today. Nasser, by contrast, walked the tightrope between on-again, off-again relations with both the USSR and the United States. By far more cautious than his Syrian counterpart, Nasser's bombastic, belligerent tone toward Israel was really only for show, as he repeatedly postponed any conflict with Israel and urged restraint on his unruly and aggressive Syrian counterparts. Jordan was the odd man out in the three-state coalition. It was then, as it is today, ruled by a monarchy in the person then of King Hussein, which placed it in the group of Arab states, like Saudi Arabia, who were instinctively despised by Nasser and Jadid. The dictators, through state-controlled media, frequently touted the legitimacy of their own regimes by criticizing others as reactionary and puppets of the imperialist West. Indeed, the monarchies of both Jordan and Saudi Arabia were created in the post-Ottoman aftermath of World War I by Great Britain. They were depicted as the antithesis of revolutionary mass movements of essentially nationalist and socialist Syria and Egypt. The deep rivalries among these three would-be allies in the war with Israel would be responsible to a large degree for their failure in the war, so it's worth understanding this problem at the outset. Syria and Egypt's leaders also had a hot and cold relationship arising to a great extent from the fragility and instability of Syria's government. Once united with Egypt as the United Arab Republic, Syria had pulled out of this brief national partnership in 1961. 
In the six years leading up to the war, Syria had seen several coup d'etats, including a recent one in 1966, an incessant jockeying for power within Jadid's Ba'ath Party. The end result was the use of Israel as a national distraction to the internal problems of Syria to an extreme degree. Syria's propaganda and provocative military actions against Israel were the most aggressive of all the Arab states. It sponsored and encouraged Palestinian terrorist incursions into Israel on a regular basis and protected them against Israeli reprisals with their military. Their status as a Soviet client state made retaliation by Israel problematic. Soviet threats of direct military intervention on behalf of their ally were made clear to Israel on several occasions by Moscow prior to the war and had the desired effect. Instead, Israel tended to punish Jordan for damage and murder by terrorist raids on its territory, even when they originated from Syria. Syria's aggressive propaganda, political action among the Arab states, and its military actions were a source of constant worry to Nasser because he had an alliance with Syria. With serious domestic concerns, especially about his failing socialist economy in 1966 and 67, Nasser had no desire for a war with Israel. He was also anxious about the dubious preparedness of his own army in a direct confrontation. As a result, Nasser found himself frequently tamping down war fever in the Arab League and in the position of restraining what he saw as the irresponsibly provocative actions of Syria, lest it drag Egypt into a premature and unwanted war. An example of the unwieldy nature of the Arab alliance is the situation posed by Jordan's entry into and then exit from the coalition prior to the war. In pre-war planning in the Arab League, it was proposed that in time of potential war, Jordan would allow units from Iraq and Saudi Arabia into Jordan to help defend the country and assist in the attack on Israel. Jordan was so diplomatically isolated and its king so fearful of assassination or a coup that he refused, making Jordan even more of an outcast in the Arab media where he was almost incessantly reviled and ridiculed. His country was also filled with Palestinian subjects, many of whom were refugees in camps and populated with militant groups like Al-Fatah, whose provocations constantly posed a risk of war or humiliation when Israel retaliated. Jordan was also the only Arab state with mainly Western European and American armaments, including its air force, supplied with 24 British Hawker Hunter fighters. Its small army, by contrast to the mass conscripts of Egypt, numbered 55,000 troops with some 300 American-made Patton tanks, which would face some 40,000 Israelis with 200 tanks. Finally, the small Jordanian army was largely comprised of long-serving professional soldiers with Western-trained officers. By late 1966, the Israeli government of Levi Eshkol had reached a point of no return, 
with an increasing tempo of Syrian-supported raids and destruction by Fatah insurgents in the north and from Jordan. Eshkol's government was hesitant to really engage the Syrians due to their status as close Soviet allies and repeated dire warnings from the Soviets themselves against any attack. Retaliatory raids against Jordan, however, proved unsatisfying and ineffective and had done little to decrease the Palestinian infiltrations. Eshkol was increasingly nudged toward a more aggressive response by some members of his cabinet and his military chiefs, most prominent among them being Yitzhak Rabin. Hard as it may seem today, the United States was not formally allied to Israel at this time, and was distracted and bogged down in a war of its own in Vietnam. The United States and its president, Lyndon Johnson, wanted no war in the Middle East that could result in increased Soviet influence there, or worse, a superpower showdown with the USSR. When Eshkol sought assurance and support from Johnson in the run-up to the war, after Egypt closed the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping on May 23, 1967, he got little. Johnson warned Israel's ambassador, Abba Iban, that if Israel started a war, it could not expect any American support, particularly from the Sixth Fleet offshore Israel in the Mediterranean. The final stage of provocations and counter-provocations came in May. Israel's military and political establishment began making public warnings to Syria and Jordan about the continuing harassment of its border communities and mobilized some reserve soldiers to emphasize the message. The Soviets then provided Nasser with false intelligence of a major Israeli military buildup on Israel's northern border with Syria, convincing Nasser that Israel was about to attack. The reason for this duplicity by the Soviets remains unclear. There's some evidence that the Soviets wanted to take advantage of American weakness from its commitment in Vietnam to increase its influence in the Middle East, and so sought to tip the region into a war in which the victorious Arab states would be beholden to Moscow. One can also conclude that perhaps the Soviets sought to accomplish this goal with as little effort on its part as possible, avoiding any direct intervention that would draw an American response in support of Israel. Thus, it sought to spur Nasser, however reluctantly, into action that would precipitate a victorious war. In any event, the military intelligence the Soviets gave to Nasser was bogus. There was no Israeli military buildup in the north against Syria, precisely because the Ashkol cabinet was afraid of Soviet intervention. In fact, after failing to secure American support for a preemptive Israeli military action, the Israeli foreign minister, 
sought to secure at least American backing against a Soviet response and failed even to get that if Israel started the war. The fake Soviet intelligence had its impact. Believing it, and goaded by Syria, who claimed Egypt's assistance by the terms of its alliance, Nasser was painted into a corner. He reacted by first demanding removal of the United Nations peacekeeping force in the Sinai that had observed and kept the peace between Israel and Egypt since the armistice in 1956. He then allowed his military commander, Amer, to begin flooding the Sinai with tanks and troops, as well as moving the bulk of the Egyptian air force to the east to bring most of Israel within nearly instantaneous reach for the purpose of bombing Israeli cities and military formations. These moves were watched with mounting alarm in Israel, which, given its precariously small territory and numerically inferior army, could not walk and wait forever. Israel's detractors have invariably accused Israel of starting the war and being the aggressor in 1967. And it's undeniably true that the campaign began with Israel making the first move. But the tipping point that began the slide toward war was Egypt's closure of the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping in violation of international law, removal of the UN peacekeeping force, and militarizing the Sinai. With the bellicose shelling from the Golan Heights by Syria and the increasing pace and tempo of Palestinian raids on Israeli territory from Jordan and Syria, few independent countries would sit idly by and simply hope for peace. Indeed, had Israel done so, it would likely have been defeated and occupied. Egypt had long had a military operations plan for a surprise preemptive attack on Israel with vast reserves dwarfing what Israel could put in the field, a protracted campaign prosecuted by the Arabs with an even mediocre tactical and strategic direction would likely doom Israel. Israel's army and reserves stripped the country's economy of virtually every able-bodied man and woman, crippling its economy should a war last very long at all. By contrast, the Arabs could summon up a virtually endless supply of men with little damage to their economy. Indeed, Abdel Hakim Amer, Egypt's supreme military commander, felt that even though his combined forces were inferior in quality to Israel's, quantity would make up for it and in time crush the Israeli army and state under its sheer weight. This would happen even more surely and quickly, he surmised, if Jordan and Syria were in the fight as well. And that was no problem. Syria's shaky Ba'ath regime was ready for a fight, and Jordan, well, it would have little choice. Here we see the first signs of the poor quality of Egypt's military command structure, starting at the top with Amer. As we've shown time and again in this podcast series, It's the common mistake of the media and those ignorant of military history that numbers are the most decisive factor in predicting the outcome of a military battle or campaign. Time and again, this has been disproved. 
generalship and the quality and motivation of the military force are equally, if not more, important. From the font of generalship can be employed many timeless military strategies and tactics, such as those first articulated by Sun Tzu, the Chinese general, whose treatise The Art of War I've mentioned before in this series. Things like surprise, deception, choosing one's ground, and so forth. The Israeli high command would employ many of these arts of war, the Arabs virtually none. The quality of the IDF, Israel's army, was quite superior to Syria's conscript soldiers who, as we'll see at the crucial moment, simply refused orders to fight. The Israeli soldier was not particularly, though, better equipped or trained than the Jordanians. And until the later stages of the Sinai campaign, the Israelis would encounter very fierce and deadly resistance from dug-in Egyptian forces in the desert and in Gaza. The crucial difference between the two armies was in the command and control structures, as we'll see. Amer, a close friend of Nasser's for most of his career, was now atop a power base of his own that Nasser felt was threatening to him. But once the decision had been made to militarize the Sinai with a large portion of the Egyptian army, the conduct of the campaign was actually left to Amer, who would make several tactical and strategic mistakes that would then cost him his life, either by suicide or murder, a couple of months later. Amer was not without military experience, but he had spent most of his military career as a political general, taking part in the coup that put Nasser and his entourage in power, for example. He was generously rewarded by Nasser. Their vacation villas were next door to each other, and in 1967, Amer was a major player, both politically and militarily, in the debacle to come. His first and perhaps most fatal mistake was to assume that Israel would wait for the combined Arab armies to invade. In a long brawl of a military campaign, Egypt's reserves alone could keep the war going and the pressure on an increasingly attritioned Israeli force. Israel's military leaders thought the same thing and had no intention of waiting. Like Hindenburg at Tannenberg or Guderian in the Battle of France, Israel's military chiefs, Moshe Dayan and Yitzhak Rabin, made a virtue out of having a smaller but much higher quality force and combined this with interior lines, deception, surprise, overwhelming force at the point of attack, and above all, air superiority. Most of these timeless military truths would play out in the lightning speed of the attack that began in the early morning hours of June 5th on the ground and in the air. And a word about the Israeli commanders Moshe Dayan, Israel's recently appointed Minister of Defense, back then in 1967, and Yitzhak Rabin, its military chief of staff, who had achieved a rare honor in being reappointed for a second three-year term of office as chief of staff, by Levi Eshkol's cabinet uh, in 1966. Rabin uh, had 
a long and distinguished military career. He was a native-born. During the 1948 Arab-Israeli War of Independence, uh, Rabin had directed Israeli operations in Jerusalem and fought the Egyptian army uh, in the Negev, uh, which is near where the fighting, uh, the Sinai Desert, where the fighting would take place in 1967. During the beginning of that war, he was the commander of the Harel Brigade, which fought on the road to Jerusalem from the coastal plain, as well as many battles in Jerusalem, such as securing the southern side of the city. In the beginning of 1949, he was a member of the Israeli delegation to the armistice talks with Egypt that were held on the island of Rhodes. The result of the negotiations were the 1949 armistice agreements, which ended the official hostilities of the 1948 Israeli War of Independence. But in 1964, he was appointed chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces by Levi Eshkol, who replaced David Ben-Gurion and served as prime minister and minister of defense for until right up to the 1967 war. Because Eshkol did not have much military experience, uh, he relied very heavily on Rabin. They got along very well personally and gave him a fairly free hand with the army. As Oren describes him in his book, um, Rabin had grown up in Tel Aviv uh, and was the son of labor Zionist activists uh, who were often away from home. And this is untypical. Um, Most of the high-ranking officers um, in the Israeli army uh, were descended from kibbutzniks and and farmers, basically agricultural uh, families. Uh, He was native-born, soft-spoken and direct, but also surprisingly shy. In this regard, he was very different from the Prime Minister, who was a fairly bland um, physical person, uh, but personally a very lively conversationalist and uh, um, very humorous and uh, funny uh, person when you got to know him. Rabin, the opposite. Very uh, quiet, uh, although his military background and bearing made him a very attractive and popular person. Moshe Dayan, on the other hand, is quite a different personality. And I'm going to quote here rather extensively from Oren's book, because I think he gives such an excellent insight into the personality of Dayan, who um, had only, as I say, recently been appointed uh, defense minister, really because of um, Levi Eshkol's lack of military experience and uh, criticism uh, of Eshkol for that as tensions rose with the Arabs. And now I'm going to quote. It's rather like arguing with an Irishman, wrote Michael Haddow of his many conversations with Diane. He enjoys knocking down ideas just for the sake of argument, and one will find him arguing in completely opposite directions on consecutive days. Indeed, Diane was a classic man of contradictions. Famed as a warrior, 
he professed deep respect for the Arabs, including those who attacked his village, Nahalalau, in the early 1930s, and who once beat him and left him for dead. A poet, a writer of children's stories, he admitted publicly that he regretted having children, and was a renowned philanderer as well. A lover of the land, who made a hobby of plundering it, he had amassed a huge personal collection of antiquities. A stickler for military discipline, he was prone to show contempt for the law. As one former classmate remembered, quote, he was a liar, a braggart, a schemer, and a prima donna, and in spite of that, the object of deep admiration, unquote. And again, continuing, equally contrasting were the opinions about him. Devotees, such as uh, Meyer Amet, found him, quote, original, daring, substantive, focused, a commander who, quote, radiated authority and leadership with outstanding instincts that always hit the mark. But many others, among them Gideon Raphael, saw it another side of him. Quote, rocking the boat is his favorite tactic, not to overturn it, but to sway it sufficiently for the helmsman to lose his grip or for some of its unwanted passengers to fall overboard. In private, Levi Eshkol referred to Diana's Abu Jildi, a scurrilous, one-eyed Arab bandit. But whether fans or detractors, no one can impugn the richness of his experience. It began with his service under Britain's legendary guerrilla leader, Ord Wingate, and then as commander in the Haganah, an occupation that earned him two years in a British prison. Released in 1941, Diane served as a scout for the Allied assault against the Vichy French in Syria and Lebanon, losing his left eye in the engagement and acquiring his trademark black patch. Next, in the 1948 war, he commanded frontline units in Lod, Jerusalem, and the Jordan Valley. Along with his military talents, his political acumen was recognized early, and after the war he became a delegate to the Armistice Talks on Roads, just like Rabin. Four years later, at the age of 38, Diane was chief of staff, pursuing a retaliation policy denounced by most of the world, but which made him exceedingly popular in Israel, a popularity only enhanced by his stellar performance in the Suez Campaign. Thereafter, as a member first of Mapai and then of Rafi, again two political parties, Diane was a shrewd, inscrutable politician, close but not beholden to David Ben-Gurion, and opposed but not implacably by Eshkel. He was a solo performer, wrote Raphael, partly respected, partly feared for his political stunts. The impact of Diane's appointment as defense minister um, a few weeks before the war was apparent at the new coalition's first meeting, Friday night, which the Minister of Defense dominated. Israel had two choices, he explained, either accept the blockade as a fait accompli and dig in for permanent defense, not a viable option, or strike the Egyptians at once. He stressed that the country's Quote, one chance for winning this war is in taking the initiative and fighting according to our own designs. Sounding optimistic. Quote, if we open with an attack and break through with our tanks to Sinai, they have got to fight our war. 
What's more, we have the chance of maintaining our other fronts with limited forces. His tone then dropped, turning baleful. Quote, God help us, though, if they hit us first. Not only do we lose our first strike capability, but we'll have to fight the war according to their plan and on territory vital to us. And so there you have it. You have in, uh, in that uh, description a good idea of the thinking of Israel's military long before the war started, but um, as it was formulated in the weeks leading up to the attack on June 5th. <laughs> Before we go on, just a word about that little musical piece, um, because that's what was playing on transistor radios in Israel in June of 1967. It's a piece called, it's an excerpt from a piece called Jerusalem of Gold. Um, Sort of a melancholy piece, but uh, wildly popular in Israel during the 1967 war. Moshe Dayan and Rabin briefed their generals in the days before the war on the strategic and operational plan Israel would employ. Israel's manpower and reserves were not near enough to fight three enemies simultaneously, Dayan understood. Egypt was by far the most dangerous enemy and had to be confronted first. In the meantime, Diane issues strict instructions to the commanders of the central front facing Jordan and the northern front facing Syria that under no circumstances were they to initiate anything. Indeed, they were to endure virtually any provocation without response while the fighting went on against Egypt in hopes that these two enemies would either stay out of the war in the case of Jordan or remain motionless in the case of Syria. And this was the first major calculation that proved correct for Diane and for Israel. The second major key was to concentrate most of the IDF, particularly the armored and mechanized or mobile infantry, against Egypt, while very little infantry, artillery, and armor was provided to the central and northern sectors. Since Israel would not likely survive a long war, even with Egypt alone, the campaign would be one of surprise, lightning-fast armored thrusts and quick envelopment of Egyptian concentrations in the Sinai Desert. This operational plan 
was to prove highly effective, both militarily and psychologically, as we'll see. The third element of Israel's plan was to gain air supremacy. In this war, the quality of Israel's largely French-built air force and its pilots was not so great to the Arab-Soviet air forces uh, that superiority could be achieved by fighting the war out in the air. Israel would attempt to gain air supremacy by a massive surprise attack that destroyed the Arab air forces on the ground. Mordechai Had, the Israeli Air Force chief, who reported to Rabin and Diane, had devised a daring and detailed plan to annihilate first Egypt's and then, if necessary, Jordan's and Syria's air forces, known as Operation Focus. At about dawn, on the morning of June 5th, Israel's entire air force scrambled and headed due west out to sea, flying at or below radar detection in complete radio silence. It then took a predetermined left turn and flew right into the Nile Valley and the Sinai, arriving over a dozen or more Egyptian air bases without warning. Egyptian pilots, having their morning coffee or tea, and the air hangars, terminals, or even out on the tarmac, saw them coming and made a run for it, but it was too late. The tactics used by Had and his pilots were well thought out. The first sorties avoided the aircraft, dropping French-Israeli-designed runway-busting bombs that made it impossible for any aircraft to even take off. Egypt's misfortune was made worse by the fact that in their haste to move their air force east, close to Israel, no significant preparations had been made to build concrete hangars or cover for the aircraft, which were therefore sitting wingtip to wingtip on the airfields in plain view. And the heart of this um, attack involved a particular weapon, and I'd like to give you a little information about it because it's very interesting. The prototype French-Israeli anti-runway weapon device was um, known as the Durandal. The French had named it for their mythical hero, Roland's sword. A top-secret device that the French and the Israelis had worked on prior to 1967. And you must remember, um, in those days, um, since 19, the 1956 uh, Suez crisis, in which France, Britain, and Israel had all you know, combined against Egypt, uh, France had been Israel's major military supplier, particularly for aircraft, and their military worked closely together uh, and this is just one example of their of their collaboration. Um, the Durandals uh, used rocket braking over a target to point the warhead directly toward the runway being attacked. At a set and at a set altitude, a second accelerator rocket uh, ignited and drove the war the warhead through the pavement of the runway before it detonated. 
The explosion created a small crater over a large new sinkhole, which enveloped even more, far more, of the, of the uh, runway, so that the damaged runway section had to be completely removed before the sinkhole could be repaired, rather than just a normal bomb crater uh, created by a normal bomb, which you could fill in and patch over. So once the runways were disabled, uh, the entire airbase's complement of aircraft were effectively grounded. Having initially grounded the bulk of the Egyptian Air Force in the first waves, Israeli pilots returned to their bases, refueled, and rearmed the jets like race like racetrack pit crews, sending them back up in the air in an astonishing 7 minutes and 30 seconds. Now no longer constrained by radio silence or the need to fly the roundabout route over the sea, Israeli pilots were back in action in the Sinai and around the canal within a few minutes after takeoff. Helpless Egyptian jets were relentlessly and methodically pounded into rubble as hundreds of sorties strafed and bombed throughout the morning until, quite literally, most of the Egyptian air force was simply destroyed. Further, the remaining Egyptian jets, located west in Egypt, when they were supplemented by Algerian jets that were sent in a day or so later at Nasser's frantic request, they couldn't use these air bases to land or take off due to the damage. The stunning success of the IAF that morning was greeted with incredulity and then elation at Israeli headquarters in Tel Aviv. Had's plan had worked even more successfully than anyone had dared hope. Only a few Israeli jets had been shot down by anti-aircraft fire as they swooped low to strafe and destroy. The magnitude of the victory, or disaster depending on your point of view, was kept absolutely secret by both Israel and Egypt for the next 24 fateful hours, for differing reasons. In Israel's case, the thinking was that the revelation of the victory would bring immediate Soviet pressure or even direct intervention by the Soviets into the war to save their Arab allies. Furthermore, wanting to avoid the perception for as long as possible that it had made the first move in the war, especially in the United States, with Lyndon Johnson's warning still reverberating in their ears, Israel had engaged in some disinformation, claiming that its forces had been fired upon first by Egypt, which was not true. The fog of war was preferred by Israel for this reason. In Egypt's case, the catastrophe could not at first be comprehended by its high command. Enwar Sadat, who would later succeed Nasser on his death and lead Egypt in yet another war in 1973, admitted he was so depressed and shattered on learning the news that he secluded himself in his villa for the rest of the war. Hosni Mubarak, yet another Egyptian later president, uh, who succeeded Sadat after his assassination, was uh, the director of Egypt's Air Academy in 1967 and watched in horror and disbelief the destruction. Amer himself uh, was actually in flight to the Sinai when the raid began and had been unable to land at any base there and had had to return to Cairo to learn the news. He deliberately deceived Nasser 
and led Nasser to believe the Israeli attack had been repulsed, and indeed that the Egyptians had downed innumerable Israeli jets. Nasser would not learn the truth until late in the day, as we'll see. Even when the true facts became known to Nasser, Egyptian media and propaganda continued to claim an Egyptian victory. Egypt's ambassador to the United Nations in New York, Mohamed Alconi, would not know until several days later what had happened, and on instructions from Cairo, in the meantime, rejected calls for an immediate armistice and ceasefire while Egypt's ground forces were being decimated by Israeli air and ground attacks in the Sinai. But the greatest casualty of the false propaganda uh, concerning the Israeli air attack would be Jordan's King Hussein, who had hesitated to become embroiled in the war given his country's weakness and proximity to Israel's heartland. But Nasser telephoned Hussein on the opening, in the opening hours of the war and excitedly proclaimed that Israel had taken severe casualties in its air attack, that Egypt would begin systematically bombing Israel's cities, and that its army was advancing from the Sinai into the Negev desert and would be advancing on Tel Aviv, you know, in no time. Taking Nasser's word for it, and fearful of being the only Arab state to be left out of the seemingly inevitable Arab victory over Israel, Hussein decided to go in. He gave the green light to his commanders to attack in the West Bank, with the idea of isolating and capturing West Jerusalem and cutting Israel in two while Israel was heavily engaged against Egypt. Machine gun fire broke out in Jerusalem around 9.30 in the morning, followed by artillery shelling of Israeli positions at 10, including suburbs of Tel Aviv. Israel's government then met to decide what to do. Levi Eshkol decided to try one last time to keep Jordan out of the war diplomatically. He passed a note to the UN commander on the West Bank, um, warning the Jordanian government not to interfere. He offered that if Jordan remained out of the war, Israel would not attack, but that if Jordan moved, Israel would have no choice but to respond. Hussein, in turn, responded to the note that it was too late. As he said, quote, the die was cast. And Jordanian shelling, indeed, now got very intense indeed. They had particularly two what are called long tom artillery pieces that from Jordan were able to directly hit Tel Aviv. And Jordanian commanders were told to lay a terrific bombardment on Tel Aviv uh, itself uh, for more than two hours. Over 900 buildings in and around Tel Aviv were damaged or destroyed in the shelling, and over 1,000 people were injured. Before noon, the Jordanian Air Force was also bombing Israeli towns. And, and here the amateur nature of the Arab Air Command and their strategy uh, is evident and, and led to their own demise. Rather than attack Israeli air bases and aircraft on the ground while it was occupied 
in refueling and sending wave after wave into the Sinai, the Jordanians bombed civilian targets instead. And while this did create momentary panic and terrified the inhabitants of the populations that were attacked, a critical opportunity was missed that morning to deal a major blow to the Israeli Air Force. Once the attacks began from Syrian and Jordanian jets, and with Egypt's airfields destroyed, Had began diverting larger and larger numbers of Israeli jets to deal with the attacks from the north and center. The Jordanian Air Force was caught refueling on the ground after their initial bombing attacks in Israel and wiped out. The same applied to the Syrian Air Force. What few sorties it flew on the morning of June 5th were directed at civilian targets for the most part, not Israeli air bases or military targets. By evening of June 5th, the Israeli Air Force uh, attacked Syrian airfields. The Syrian Air Force lost some 32 MiG-21s, 23 MiG-15s and 17 fighters, and two Aleutian 28 bombers, two-thirds of its fighting strength. A Syrian aircraft that survived the attack retreated to distant bases in the interior of Syria without playing any further role in the ensuing warfare. The devastating attack revealed to Syria's leadership and military command, too late, that Nasser's earlier claims of Egyptian air victories and an advance on Tel Aviv had been false. The Arab alliance's failure to protect its air force against surprise attack, given the tense situation that existed on June 4th, was nothing short of criminal negligence. In a single stroke, Israel essentially blinded the Arabs' military command to Israel's ground movements and exposed their own ground forces to strafing and bombing. The IAF destroyed 452 enemy aircraft, including 79 in air combat, while losing 46 of its own, 24 Israeli pilots and hundreds of Arab pilots were killed in the course of the air war. Now let's talk about what was happening on the ground after this devastating air attack. Diane, Rabin, and the Israeli generals had arranged their forces so that Israel's ground-striking force against Egypt would be mainly armored tanks supported by air and mechanized infantry. Israel would have six armored brigades, one infantry brigade, one mechanized infantry brigade, and three paratrooper brigades, a total of about 70,000 men with 700 tanks. Israel would confront seven Egyptian divisions. Now remember, a division is normally comprised of between two and four brigades. There would be four armored divisions, two infantry, and two mechanized infantry, with between 900 and 950 tanks, and over a thousand artillery pieces. Under Soviet guidance, Egypt had arranged its army in the sort of hedgehog style of defense, similar to that employed by Vagon in the closing stages of the Battle of France. Infantry up front to receive the initial assault, backed by masses of artillery, 
and more infantry in a second line with mobile tank units and armored personnel carriers to the rear to contain any breakthroughs. It's interesting to consider that notwithstanding Egypt's bellicose propaganda and saber-rattling leading up to the conflict, it arrayed its forces in an essentially defensive posture facing Israel, presuming an Israeli attack. Egypt's strategic thinking was heavily influenced by Soviet advisors who contemplated a Russian-style method of fighting in this sense. The Israelis would strike first, much as the Nazi Germans did in the Second World War, and be ground down in a series of pitched battles with high casualties inflicted. Territory, essentially worthless barren desert in the Sinai, could easily be conceded for Israeli casualties, and with far superior reserves compared to Israel, Egypt could wait. Once the moment of opportunity arrived, Egypt would be able to launch a massive counterattack with fresh forces and tanks against a weakened, weary Israeli army in the middle of the Sinai Desert. For a little balance, we have an Egyptian tune, Sayer al-Shar Ketnin, which uh, is a very nice-sounding little tune, and I hope you like that one, too. Now, the Egyptian war plans that I just described might have been very effective had Egypt maintained some semblance of air parity with the Israelis' Uh, at the outset of the war. But as we've seen, uh, they didn't do that, and so their lines and troops in the desert were exposed to Israeli air supremacy, which would have a decisive effect. The Red Air Force had, back in 1941, maintained some parity with the Luftwaffe as the German army advanced deep into Russia, where the same strategy by Marshal Zhukov had saved Moscow. But Egypt lost any semblance of air cover in the opening hours of the campaign. Furthermore, Stalin and Zhukov had nerve and grit. They never lost their composure, nor did Soviet soldiers. If necessary, you'll remember from our earlier podcast, secret police soldiers stationed behind Soviet troops in battle would shoot and kill any deserters or retreating soldiers. As Stalin once said, it takes more courage to retreat in the Soviet army than it does to advance. But Egypt did not have a Stalin in Nasser, nor a Zhukov in Amer. They lacked the courage and determination to fight when the going got rough, and, as we'll see, their psychological collapse after the first day or two of battle 
could only be compared to that of Marshal Gamelin and the French High Command in the opening days of the Battle of France in 1940. Now, in this war, battles would be fought along roads, <clears throat> and especially at isolated crossroads and villages in a desert that was otherwise impassable even to tracked vehicles on either side of the roads, or in fortified positions near roads, villages or small cities that clung to these same roads that stretched largely east and west through the desert to the Suez Canal. Israel's operational attack against Egypt would concentrate in two basic areas, Gaza and the northern coastal area of the Sinai, led by one of Israel's best tank commanders, Israel Tal, and in a sort of mid-central sector led by Ariel Sharon, later to become a prime minister of Israel. The entire Sinai, or so-called southern sector, was commanded by Major General Yeshayahu Gavish. Israel's front against Jordan was commanded by Uzi Narkis, and the northern front against Syria was commanded by David Elazar, who would go on later to become Israel's chief of staff during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. The ground war in the Sinai, notwithstanding Israeli air support, would nonetheless be fierce and bloody in the opening days of the campaign. Sharon and Tal deployed their forces under cover of darkness on the night of June 4th, observing absolute radio silence, and timed their attack on the morning of June 5th with the massive air raid underway so as not to alert the Egyptians of the imminent attack. Once the initial raid was complete, Israel struck hard and fast. Tal's forces entered the Gaza Strip, which hugs the Mediterranean Sea just south of Israel, carefully avoiding Gaza City, a teeming metropolis of half a million Palestinians. The Egyptians had four of their seven divisions in the area around Gaza and the coastline of the Sinai Peninsula to the town of Rafa. Now, we always talk about topography and geography here and we also assume that as you listen to this driving to work or walking your dog uh, you may not have a map right in front of you so let me give it to you as best I can so you can think about this in your mind's eye there's a major highway from Gaza City to the Suez Canal which essentially runs along the coastline two major cities straddle the highway Rafa on the Egyptian-Gaza border, and El-Arish. After passing through these two cities, there are really only villages and settlements until you reach Al-Kantara and the Suez Canal. The whole distance from one end to the other is just over 200 kilometers, or about 125 miles. On this highway today, the trip would take a little over three hours by car. Tal's forces were to advance along this axis, enveloping and destroying Egyptian resistance along the way, which they did. Predictably, the main fighting took place in or near Rafa and Al-Arish on June 5th. Rafa, a city with sprawling military camps, was largely bypassed with the main attack coming around the flank of the Egyptians to the south. 
Nonetheless, heavy fighting took place in and around the city until resistance began to break by the afternoon. Tal pressed on down the highway through a seven-mile area known as the Gerardi Defile in the afternoon, while fighting was still underway in and around Rafa. Now, this defile is really a narrow pass through which the highway ran, and it was populated by Egyptian troops and artillery and positions uh, on either side of the road. Initially, the Egyptians were surprised by the Israelis, uh, mistaking them for their own army, and a lot of Tal's forces, you know, rolled through untouched. But then all hell broke loose. Rafa itself was taken by midnight on June 5th, after heavy fighting all day against dug-in Egyptian defenders in strong points in and around the city. Egypt took some 2,000 casualties and lost 40 tanks in the battle, and its army eventually routed back toward Al-Arish. Now, mind you, the Israelis have already taken the road to Al-Arish, so they're actually behind some forward Israeli elements as they retreat from Rafa toward Al-Arish, the next major town and position. But at the same time, by late afternoon, Tal's forces had emerged from the pass and approached Al-Arish. So this, this pass area is going to change hands during the day, back and forth between Israeli and Egyptian control as the fighting goes on there. And there's going to be uh, times when Tal's advance force, forces uh, approaching al-Arish are, are basically cut off uh, from other units on the other side, which are still fighting in and around Rafa. And this gives you the idea of the breakneck speed with which the Israeli attack was pressed um, to the point where they would even permit um, formations to be cut off so long as they were still advancing on the next uh, objective. Israeli uh, armored losses were about half those of Egypt, 28 tanks, but their soldiers fared much better. There was only 93 wounded and 66 killed in the fighting. By 10 o'clock in the evening, Tal was at the gates of Al-Arish, uh, while Rafa was still, you know, again, in flames and fighting. And the Egyptian army was in confusion and reeling. Now remember, with no air force, uh, and you're, as you're going to see, very poor communications with each other and with Cairo, these units have very little idea of what's happening. Um, they're just getting attacked left and right, uh, and center and from the rear, and they don't really understand or know where the Israelis are coming from much of the time. An IDF lieutenant, Yossi Paled, described the scene of, uh, El, uh, on the, of the road to El Arish um, that evening, and, and I quote, and this is again in Michael Oren's book, Quote, Egyptian tanks were burning for as far as we could see, and Egyptian soldiers lying between them. But many of our tanks were also ablaze, and the Israelis lying beside them were no longer alive. Air power had not been a major factor in the fighting on this first day, because the IAF was still engaged in Operation Focus in the central and northern sectors, and we'll get come back to them in a, in a minute. Meanwhile, the second thrust under Ariel Sharon 
also encountered stout resistance around Umkatef, an area near a desolate crossroad in the, you know, sort of the near Sinai Desert to Israel, around another village called uh, Abu Agila. One of the two roads branching off near Abu Agila leads deep into the interior of the Sinai and eventually to the Suez Canal around the Great Bitter Lake and only a short distance from the city of Suez, the southern end of the Suez Canal, where it empties into the Red Sea. Sharon was opposed there by the battle-hardened 2nd Infantry Division, Uh, but that division was led by Major General Sadi Naguib, who military historians regard, and I think justly so, as an incompetent crony of Amer's. Nonetheless, Naguib disposed of some 16,000 men, 90 tanks, and 80 artillery pieces in well-fortified trench systems with minefields, machine gun nests, and anti-tank positions. So it was not an easy objective for Sharon. Nonetheless, Sharon's force approached Umkatef from the west and from the north under heavy shellfire, and picked its way through dunes and mines, which took most of the day, and with heavy casualties. Additional reserves were brought up once these obstacles were breached, and by nightfall, as Tal was reaching El Arish, Sharon's forces were ready to attack Umkatef and Abu Aguila. His superior, General Gavish, at first told Sharon to hold up the attack for 24 hours, until the IAF could support the attack over Sharon's objections. But shortly thereafter, Gavish phoned and said the IAF had rescinded their offer due to the advances of the Jordanian army on the central front and the need to um, deal with the Jordanian and Syrian air forces in the north. So Sharon attacked around 4 a.m. on June 6th. Israeli and Egyptian tanks were engaged in intense combat at ranges as close as 10 yards. 40 Egyptian and 19 Israeli tanks were burning by the time combat subsided, with 55 Israeli casualties and some 300 Egyptians dead and another 100 Egyptians taken prisoner. At 8 a.m., Tal's forces entered Al-Arish. Yossi Paled, a company commander described their entry. I'm going to quote here. We entered the city at 8 a.m., intending to cross it and reach the coast road. Alarish was totally quiet, desolate. Suddenly the city turned into a madhouse. Shots came at us from every alley, every corner, every window and house. Unquote. Nonetheless, Tal's subordinate, a colonel by the name of Shmuel Gonin, divided his force into three parts to keep the pace of the momentum going and psychological shock on the Egyptians. One part of his force he delegated to quelling the city of Gaza, which had by now risen with anger at the Israeli forces nearby. Now you remember, Gaza is now way to the rear, uh, past Rafa, So he's sending a force back there to now deal with an uprising in Gaza City. And the Palestinians are there shelling the Israelis with artillery, 
uh, and attacking with what we would call irregular forces, but basically our militia and Palestinian volunteers. Tal sent a second force uh, to continue rapidly down the coast highway toward the canal, where it met increasingly light resistance. The third part, he turned south toward uh, Bir Lafa, which, when captured, would place him in, to the north and rear of the Egyptians' crumbling position at Umm Katef, which was under attack by Sharon, posing a potential envelopment risk to the Egyptians there. Cut off from any support by the main Egyptian armies who were, in any case, retreating from Rafa and Al-Arish by the morning of June 6th, Gaza City soon fell by noon, with mopping up operations that continued throughout the day there. On the central front, the mauled Egyptian 2nd Division was now in retreat toward the second or third line of defense between it and the canal. But now the Israeli Air Force, having completed Operation Focus, mercilessly hounded, strafed, and bombed the Egyptians, strung out on the desert roads with no cover, leaving a long trail of burning tanks and dead soldiers that Sharon's formations passed in pursuit. As with most battles, the most casualties and losses of materiel were sustained by Egypt in retreat than in actual battle. Let me step back here and point out the decisive difference between the Israeli and Egyptian high commands that I think is really the key to understanding the overwhelming victory Israel achieved in this war. Contrary to popular belief, in my opinion, the difference was not in the quality of Israeli equipment or even the motivation and quality of the IDF soldiers versus the Egyptians. It was not that Israel... French-built aircraft was decisively superior to the Soviet MiGs, but rather that uh, the brilliant operational plan of Mordecai Had had destroyed the aircraft on the ground so that it never came to protracted aerial combat. That would have occupied the IAF and deprived the IDF of tactical air cover and support in the Blitzkrieg unleashed on Egypt. It was not the superiority of Israeli tanks over Arab tanks, but the lack of air cover and the massing of Israel's armor and mechanized infantry at the point of attack by Gavish when he entered the Sinai and the operational plan that kept Israeli columns moving and spreading panic in the frontline Egyptian formations crowded in the eastern Sinai. Egyptian soldiers, uh, Egyptian soldiers had high morale and were well-armed at the outset of the battle and fought when engaged with a ferocity and skill, just as the Israelis were, fighting for the survival of the state. The difference was in the leadership. In Israel, the war was directed from Rabin's headquarters in Tel Aviv. Rabin and the general staff worked as a team with outstanding communications with their commanders in the field. They were professional generals with long experience. Further, the Israeli cabinet met on and off continuously throughout the crisis, frequently consulting with and providing overall political strategic guidance to the war, especially Moshe Dayan. 
At every point, Israel's balance between strategic considerations and local operational and tactical direction were brainstormed and maintained. By contrast, Egypt's high command reflected the incompetence and arrogance of Amer. He was initially elated at the outbreak of, his, uh, of hostilities, but his mood began to change as news of the devastating Israeli air attack became known to him. He deceived Nasser for most of the day until the late afternoon when Nasser, unable to, commu- unable to communicate with his own commanders during the day, made his way to his, the Egyptian headquarters. Oren, in his book, describes what Nasser found at around 4 p.m. Quote, Amer, either drunk or drugged or both, had gone from a state of extreme excitement to one of profound depression. Screaming into the phone, he told Egyptian commander Murtigai first to move his forces at Al-Arish to Umm Kataf, and then changed his mind in order to retreat to Jabal Libni and the second line of defense. He spoke with Siddiqui Muhammad and declared that U.S. and not Israeli planes had performed the attack against Egypt. Amer refused to take other calls, whether from the Soviet ambassador or from the foreign ministry, all of them anxious for information. The defense minister had a bed moved into his office, then sequestered himself inside. Nasser tried to talk with his field marshal, but found him inconsolable and practically incoherent. Nasser and Amer agreed to maintain the fiction of direct Anglo-American involvement in the war, both to minimize Egypt's dishonor and to prod the Soviets to intervene. It's a pretty somber depiction of what uh, the Egyptian command was like once hostilities began. Amer had even cut communications among and between his various commanders for fear of losing control of the army, which left the field commanders in the dark about the overall situation. Diane's insistence on total press silence, with the exception of briefing the Americans, maintained the fog of war as well. Israel, having experienced nothing but success, wanted to push all the buttons, quote-unquote, as they told the Americans, and asked them to help Israel play for time until it could complete its objectives. Diane's instructions to Narcus and Elazar to ignore Jordanian and Syrian actions while the army concentrated on Egypt, no matter how provocative, gradually succumbed to the Israeli cabinet's consternation at the shelling and bombing by both countries, and as the day wore on, to Jordanian movements in the West Bank that threatened West Jerusalem and the vulnerable 30-mile neck of Israel between the West Bank and the sea that would cut Israel in two. Now, mind you, the Nesset building and government offices in Tel Aviv were being actively shelled that the morning of the 5th. Uh, so the Israeli cabinet and civilians there, you know, really felt Jordan's entry into the war more than uh, really the fighting that was going on in Egypt of farther away. Jordanian shelling of Tel Aviv and West Jerusalem was sustained and horrific uh, to morale in Israel and the cabinet, it's fair to say. 
Once it became clear upon receipt of King Hussein's die is cast message, the Israeli cabinet met to decide what to do. At first, as we've seen, Israel's response was to take out the Jordanian Air Force along with that of Iraq and Syria. Then the IAF began blunting Jordanian attacks and bases, but by 2 o'clock in the morning on the 6th of June, Narcus's plan to launch an attack on Ammunition Hill near Jerusalem, a pivotal base of attack for the Jordanian army, was approved and begun. What followed was one of the fiercest and bloodiest battles of the war. Ammunition Hill had been well fortified by the Jordanians with trenches and underground bunkers. An intelligence failure on the part of Israel grossly underestimated the size of the force defending the hill, assuming it to be a a mere platoon, while in truth it was defended by portions of the crack Jordanian El Hussein regiment, and their numbers equaled that of the Israeli paratroop company that assaulted the hill. Bitter fighting raged until 6.30 in the morning, and without air support due to the proximity of civilian populations. All of the Israeli officers but the two company commanders were killed, and much of the fighting was hand-to-hand. Eventually, Israel achieved control of the hill, a remarkable achievement for which ten of Mordecai Gur's soldiers received citations by the Israeli general staff. This site is actually a war memorial today and visited by some 200,000 people annually. The taking of Ammunition Hill was part of a larger plan to encircle East Jerusalem and forces from Elazar's northern command were actually detached from there to assist, making his position even more precarious to any Syrian attack. But none came. The rest of the day of June 6th saw continued heavy fighting, sometimes with knives and bayonets, as Israeli forces slowly closed the circle around East East Jerusalem, taking Ramallah and other fortified strongpoints, now with increasing air support. By June 7th, the old city was nearly surrounded. Moshe Dayan hesitated to enter the old city, fearing an international backlash. Furthermore, the UN was now meeting to demand a ceasefire backed by the United States. A motion was passed, but incredibly, Egypt's ambassador to the UN was still unaware of the dire situation in the Sinai and the annihilation of Egypt's air force and rejected the ceasefire. Syria's ambassador followed suit, and the ceasefire motion was a dead letter, an outcome greeted with relief by the Israeli cabinet, but which spurred the decision to take Jerusalem before the opportunity slipped from their grasp. Hussein had had enough, and by 11.30 that evening, ordered all Jordanian forces to retreat over the Jordan River, basically every man for himself. Then another UN resolution proposed by the United States and the Soviet Union was presented. Jordan and Israel both accepted the resolution immediately. Hussein, still in possession of East Jerusalem and the Old City, grasped at the possibility that his situation could yet be saved by a ceasefire. He rescinded the retreat order and at 2.30 a.m. 
ordered all units on the east bank of the Jordan to recross and try and hold their ground until the ceasefire went into effect. The Israelis detected Jordanian units recrossing the Jordan and immediately grasped their purpose. At that point, at 4 a.m. on June 7th, the cabinet, including Diane, decided to take the city. Narcus was given the order to, quote, break into the old city immediately, but proceed carefully. Use your head. Israeli commanders and soldiers now looking down on the old city, containing the remains of the second temple, the western wall, eagerly received the order. Only about a hundred Jordanian soldiers were left within the old city to defend it, the rest having been withdrawn earlier to prevent a disastrous encirclement. At 6 o'clock a.m., Israeli guns opened fire on the Muslim quarter. At 9.45, Israeli tanks blasted through the Lion's Gate, while another company of the Jerusalem Brigade climbed Mount Zion and headed for the Zion Gate. Gur, the paratrooper commander whose men had taken Ammunition Hill on the morning of June 6, reached the Temple Mount, site of the First and Second Temple, and Muhammad's ascent to heaven. He radioed Narcus, quote, The Temple Mount is in our hands. Unquote. An Israeli intelligence officer, uh, Eric Akaman, described the scene. Quote, there you are on a half-track after two days of fighting with shots still filling the air, and suddenly you enter this wide-open place that everyone has seen before in pictures. And although I'm not religious, I don't think there was a man who wasn't overwhelmed with emotion. Something special had happened. Now let's talk about Syria. Israel's northern commander, David Elazar, had been forced to hunker down and endure the shelling and pounding by Syria and fend off Syrian attacks for days now. Some of his forces, as we've seen, had even been detached to help the Jordanian theater. Part of Israel's hesitation was due to the miserable showing by the Syrian army up to June 9th. It had attempted two feeble offensives in the north, but its forces had been driven off by the local kibbutz defenders and then chased back into Syria, by the IAF. Syria's officers reported outright refusals of Syrian reserve soldiers to fight at all. They would defend their turf if attacked, but make no move outside their positions. By June 9th, the Israeli Air Force rounded on the Syrians for the first time and subjected Syrian positions to a relentless pounding. Syrian morale plummeted. Elazar however, continued to agitate and advocate to Diane for an advance into the Golan Heights area before a ceasefire was imposed by the UN and felt confident it could be achieved. In his mind, a golden opportunity beckoned to finally rid northern Israel of the never-ending raids and shelling from the Golan Heights that Israel had been forced to stomach for years. At the last minute, Diane changed his mind and without cabinet approval or authorization, gave Elazar the go-ahead to begin the offensive, but only on condition that he complete his operations by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when the pressure on Israel to accept the ceasefire would be overwhelming. Don't even ask for air support after 2 p.m., 
Elazar was told. At around 11.30 in the morning, Elazar attacked along five narrow spearheads into the Golan Heights, supported by the IAF. There was resistance in some pockets, but it quickly collapsed. An order from Damascus to retreat to cover the capital followed. Officers now deserted their units, and Elazar completed his operations under increasing pressure from Tel Aviv before a ceasefire was finally accepted. Now back to Egypt. Despite the fact that Egypt's large army and ground equipment still posed a very formidable threat after June 6th with the fall of Abu Aguila to Sharon's forces and the approach of Tal's forces from Al-Arish, Amer panicked and issued an order for all Egyptian forces to retreat to the West Bank of the Suez Canal. With that, the defeat of Egypt was now a certainty, the only question being how decisive it would be. No instructions were given by Amer from Cairo to individual commanders on the retreat, which was received with stunned disbelief by many of them. Hearing only Egyptian and Arab propaganda until then, and unaware of the overall situation, the retreat order completely demoralized Egyptian field commanders and officers. Many of them abandoned their units and headed for Cairo, leaving their soldiers to fend for themselves. The carnage inflicted by the pursuing Israelis, and particularly by the Israeli Air Force, was severe indeed. Confused columns embroiled in massive traffic jams on the very few roads that led to the canal and and to safety presented easy targets. The IAF now dropped napalm, resulting in heavy casualties in both equipment and lives. Several pitched battles still occurred in the heights before the Suez Canal, but Egyptian forces were inevitably a day late and a dime short, with further losses after routing. It was a fiasco. Oren describes the despair in Nasser's own compound, as described by the governor of Aswan, Madkur Abdu al-Iz. Quote, this is Nasser now, I'm sitting here waiting for the army to come take me. The president was alone, sitting in the dark due to a blackout. Quote, My personal guard is at the front, along the canal, but I need nothing except my pistol. It's here in my pocket, ready. Amer had already attempted suicide. Later in the morning of July 9th, Nasser told the editor of Al-Abram that he accepted complete responsibility for the debacle and would face a firing squad if the people so determined. Nasser told him he would announce his resignation at 6.30 in the evening. By July 9th, the Egyptian and Syrian ambassadors at the UN were finally briefed on the catastrophe that had befallen their military. Egyptian Ambassador Mohammed Alkoni was stunned and then dissolved into tears. By that point in time, with the Israelis at the Suez Canal and its allies, Syria and Jordan, also crushed, Egypt desperately needed a ceasefire, and only then was Alkoni instructed not to oppose one.
Sadly, this is yet another example of the scandalous mismanagement of the Nasser regime, who had known days earlier that only a UN ceasefire could save the situation, but had not bothered to inform its ambassador of the true facts. On June 10, 1967, a ceasefire was accepted by all sides. Israel had utterly destroyed three Arab armies and tripled the size of its country. It was in possession of Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and the Sinai from Egypt. Jordan had been expelled from all areas on the west bank of the Jordan, and Israel was now in possession of a united Jerusalem. Even Syria had lost substantial territory, the Golan Heights, from which position Israeli military units could literally see Syria's capital of Damascus. Few military campaigns in the 20th century changed the course of history as this one did, and we continue to live with the consequences of it today. Nasser's resignation was not accepted, and he continued as president of Egypt until his death three years later. He was succeeded by Anwar Sadat, and there was another war, the Yom Kippur War, in 1973, in which Israel once again defeated Egypt, but this time just barely. In 1973, it was Egypt that launched a surprise attack. After suffering initial heavy losses, Israel again prevailed. But in September 1978, Sadat agreed to a separate peace with Israel and its Prime Minister Menachem Begin under the guidance of U.S. President Jimmy Carter that has lasted to this day. The Sinai was delivered back to Egypt, but without Gaza. Egypt wanted no further responsibility for the plight of the Palestinians. It remained in Israeli hands until it was handed over by Israel to the Palestinian Authority in 2007. Jordan followed suit in 1994, disclaiming the entire West Bank and Jerusalem to Israel. The treaty was signed in Washington by King Hussein, and now Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, under the auspices of U.S. President Bill Clinton. Jordan, likewise, had no appetite to become embroiled in further Palestinian claims. Israel continues to occupy the West Bank today, and Jerusalem is its capital. Only Syria remained on the outside with Israel, but, deprived of any allies, never attempted to engage the Israeli again in military conflict since 1973. Israel continues to occupy the Golan Heights to this day. Israel's ongoing issue with the Palestinians also remains to this day. 
But as the years have gone by, the Palestinians' position has grown weaker and weaker, while Israel has grown stronger and stronger. It is today, without question, the most powerful military state in the Middle East, backed by an American alliance. The incessant conflicts between various Arab regimes and religious groups has only worsened, notwithstanding the Arab Spring. Syria has been reduced to a failed state, with its Alawite regime under Bashar Assad clinging to power in a vicious civil war only with the support of Russia. In fact, Israel's foreign policy and regional objectives are largely shared by Jordan and Saudi Arabia, in particular facing Sunni fanatics such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. The world would never be the same after the Six-Day War in 1967. And so, this brief military campaign deserves its rightful place, in my opinion, in this continuing series as a battle that bent the arc of history.